0: Good evening. It's good to be here again and to see your faces again. Um, yeah, so today we're going to talk about um, Matthew 11. We're going to study Matthew 11, what the Lord has to teach us there. But um, before that, I would like to open up with a prayer. Lord, we thank you for your grace upon our lives, and we pray now that you would By your grace, um, grant your blessing to me and also to those listening, Lord, that you would be glorified tonight and that your word would go forth um, with power and with clearness and that you would assist those listening, Lord, and that you would keep away all distractions. Help me, Father, and help uh, my my brothers and sisters here. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. amen. So, um, G.K. Chesterton has an essay called On the Book of Job, and in it he, he makes a very interesting interesting remark. You probably know Job's, uh, the book of Job, right, how it goes, that he loses everything, basically, his wife curse, uh, says to him that he should curse God, right, and so he's having a very bad predicament, and he has three friends that tell him um, all sorts of solutions, all sorts of human solutions, oh, this is what went wrong with you, you did this, that's why that happened, oh, you're suffering because you must have sinned somewhere, some sort of human solution, that's what they were trying to find for, for this mystery that was Job and his suffering situation, right, and it's very interesting, Job was not comforted by those friends, Right, he was not comforted. But what happens when God comes on the scene? What does God do? Does He give him straightforward solution? Oh, this is why you suffered. No, He shows him the world, and shows him that it's even a more mysterious world and more eerie world than he had ever thought that it was. He tells him to look, for example, at um, the the uh, the light or to analyze the light, where it comes from, where it goes, right? Where, no one knows. It, just, it is there. Or the same with darkness. Where does darkness, uh, where does darkness live? Or he tells him about the morning stars that sang together and the sons of God that shouted for joy when God created the world. Or he tells him about Leviathan, out of whose, this is how it says, out of whose sneezings flash forth light and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. That's a strange animal. God is showing him this. You thought your situation was mysterious. No, let me show you this. this is God, as it were, deepens the riddle, deepens the mystery that is Job and, 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 his, and his suffering. And he doesn't provide the solutions that the humans were trying to make to give these three friends. And it's very interesting. Job was comforted after God came on the scene. He was not com- comforted by those um, straightforward solutions that their friends offered, but he was comforted by the mystery that God presented. And G.K. Chesterton says this about, that, about this, this situation in this book. He says, The riddles of God are more satisfying than the solutions of men. And I think, I think, if we are going to be honest, there are riddles in the book of in, in, in the Bible. There are mysteries, right? And it, it says even in Proverbs twenty five too that it is the glory of God to conceal a thing. God is not like us. We are finite beings. God is infinite. God is different to us. He is. I mean, he he says and that and a whole world comes to light, comes to, comes to life, or comes into existence just by his word. He is so different to us. And I, I mentioned this verse last time that I was here, but I'm going to read it again because it is so good. It's in Job twenty-six fourteen. It says, Indeed, these are the mere edges of his ways. Talking about creation. These are the mere edges of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand so we see all around us, wow, God must be so glorious and so powerful. We look at the Grand Canyon. We look at a mountain. That's just the edges of His ways. We don't, God is, God is beyond us. We, we cannot, we can truly understand Him, but we cannot fully understand Him. And we will have a whole eternity running after, the, after this God and trying to understand salvation and Jesus and God and, and who He is. Right? A whole eternity. That's how wonderfully different He is. So, that's, our, that's the reality about God. Now, the reality about us humans is that we like to have things figured out, don't we? We like to have, this is how it is. Yeah? One-to-one ratio. That when this happens and that happens. Like the three friends. Okay, you must have done something. So, that's why this happened. So, we want to have things in control. We like predictability. And we can even see that in pagan religions around the world. Um, if you go to, for example, Hinduism, they will, uh, they will uh, you know, if, if you give their gods, their millions of gods, if you give them maybe a worship service every morning, like you do some sort of worship rites or you give them um, maybe some sort of offering, a food. You know, you, In other words, you scratch their back. You scratch the back's of the gods, and they will give you something in return. Your ch- your, you, know, you will not have miscarriages. You will, your crops will not fail. So it's a one-to-one, right? You do this, and then that. So they control their gods. But our God is not like that. Our God is God, and He does whatever He pleases. We don't... He is different to us, and He is not like one made in our image. We are made in His image, right? So... That's, that, that's a reality, and that's what we must be careful with, that we don't, as it were, um, try to have a God whom we fully understand. And I think among us Reformed people, that is kind of a, a danger, right? We love theology, and that's a good thing. That's a very good thing. I'm not saying we shouldn't strive to understand God and to understand theology and read John Owen and read John Calvin Right, wonderful man, and we we can learn a lot from them. But um, is there not a danger of trying to go and trying to find solutions and answers where God has, where there's no real um, solution? Where if we would state this, then we would go into error. I I will I will explain it a little bit better um, in, in a while. I think you will understand better. But John Calvin has this quote about God. Because some would say, well, he, God speaks to us, right, in His Word. And that is true. He, he does speak to us. But even when He speaks to us, He has to lower Himself so that we, as, as finite human beings, so that He, this transcendent God, can communicate with us finite beings. John Calvin says this. When, when He speaks to us through His Word, He lisps with us, as nurses do with the little children. Right? So, we must come to God's Word with an attitude of humility, right? Not, not with an attitude of, I'm going to, uh, yeah, I have everything figured out. Because there are mysteries, as we will see now in a while. There are mysteries in God's Word. And, and we must be, one last quote from G.K. Chesterton. He says this, The poet only asks to get his head into the heavens. It is the logician who seeks to get the heavens into his head. And it is his head that splits. We want to peek into God's word and just see the wonders and see the greatness of God and see the glory. But we don't want to get all who God is and everything that God is into our heads. We are finite beings. That's not possible. We must, be with, with, we must be come to a place where we look at God's word and we say with Isaac Watts, Great God, how infinite art thou. What worthless worms are we let the whole race of creatures bow and pay their praise to thee right that's that's how we approach scripture with an attitude of humility and with an attitude of god you are infinite and i am finite teach me teach me help me to see and let me not go beyond your word trying to make up human solutions because there are mysteries like i already said for example i ask you who wrote the book of romans who, wants to get, who, who wrote the book of Romans? Paul. Paul, right. But why do we call it God's word and not Paul's word? God also wrote it, right? But it's Paul. But where does it start? Where does Paul's word sign? Where does God's word? It's a mystery. You want, if you want to have clear-cut answers there, it's dangerous. You state it like that. It's God's word, and yet Paul wrote it. Um, The Holy Spirit moved Paul as he was writing it. Or what about, is God one or is God three? God God is one. The Bible is clear. Yet there are three persons. The Trinity, that's what we believe. What is it, one or is it three? It's both. That's, if we start... starting to to give human solutions to that, we end up in heresy. We state the facts as as the Lord, as the Bible says them, and then we shut our mouth. We don't go beyond God's word. And we we marvel at the mystery that is a God who is one in three persons, right? So, there's one more mystery. There are more mysteries, but one more mystery, and that's the one that we're going to look at today, and it's the mystery of man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. And that is one mystery where people have often gone into error, right? Either hyper Calvinism or a overemphasis on man's responsibility. So there are dangers there again. And Jesus, as balanced as he always is in, in everything that he says, he gives us this the solution to this. He does not put them to pit them together. And uh, so I invite you to go to Matthew 11, verse 25 to 30. That's what we will be looking at today. So I'll, I'll, I'll read for you. Mm. It says in, in verse 25, At that time Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So, here we have, here we have the a very balanced view, a perfectly balanced view, I would say, because it's Jesus who says it, of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. So, we first need to analyze the, the first verse, ver, uh, verse twenty-five. Um, what, what what is what is uh, Jesus talking about here? Right, he is praying. Right, he has just given judgments. Um, if you did a few verses before, he has given judgments on um, Capernaum, on um, yeah, Bethsaida and Chor- Chor- Chorazin, and judgment, right? Judgment because they were they basically did not become like children. They were haughty. They thought themselves they were too prideful, and they they didn't um, believe in, in in Christ and in his miracles, right? And then he says, and then he comes into this prayer. Jesus prays to his Father. And, and he says that, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things. Now, what, is, what are these things? Um, I, I believe it, we, we must clarify that before we can advance, right? So um, we, we can see here that in... Um, yeah, I'm sorry. In... Um, yeah, that no one, that no one like, if you, if you look at the whole verse, that it says that God, that God has revealed these things to babes, right? And then further down, we see also that Jesus, in verse 27, at the end, that the Son, or Jesus, is the one who revealed. So we see a perfect balance there between Father and Son, that they together work together to reveal certain things. About God, uh, about God, to certain people, and these things must be salvation. It must be nothing else than salvation. Because if you look at, at verse, seven, uh, verse 17, uh, chapter 17, verse six of John, it says this: "I have manifested your name to the men whom, whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word." Right, so there's a manifestation here, there's a revelation here that 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 God has done, that God has given to certain men. And who are these men? This is the high, This is the, the prayer that Jesus prays for his disciples. So, it's a manifestation of Himself that He has given to believers. So this is a, this is not this is not a salvation. These things, when it says these things, is not to anyone, it's to believers. So this is concerned. This verse here, these verses are concerned with salvation, with the salvation of of, of a human being from death to life. And we also see that if you just look at the the verses before that that we were already mentioning um, about the the cities, because it says there, they did not repent. Right? And there's a natural flow going from, from verse 21, 22, 23, 24 into the prayer. So the theme here is repentance. It's salvation. It's... Um, people being dead in sin and being shown by the Father, being revealed by the Father who He is, and who they are, and thus getting saved. Right. So it is concerned with salvation. That's the first thing we must we must um, state, and we are going to analyze it more thoroughly in a minute. But first, we must we must look at the 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 phrase. Um, the wise, as well as to babes or to little children, right? As some virgins have it, little children or the wise. Who are these? Are these like maybe more educated people? So the, yeah, the wise are like those that have been to seminary or have the, been to university. And God does not reveal to them these things or salvation. But to little children who are maybe not educated, that's not what it's talking about, right? It's, it's talking about an attitude of the heart. It's talking about humility, right? These wise men, they thought themselves wise, to be wise in their own eyes. So they were pride, prideful. But little children, have you ever looked at little children? They're very humble. In many ways, they're very humble. They are ready to learn. It's like, you tell them this, it's like, oh, really, yeah, that's true. They're just amazed at it. Or they will be they will have a great time with just playing with the lizard for half an hour. They're just very natural, very humble, very, um, yeah. They don't need a lot, right? They don't need a lot. They, they don't need to have all sorts of big explanations. So Jesus is saying you must become humble like that, just accepting, just accepting. To those, to those is it that he, that, um, that salvation Will be, uh, will be revealed, right, to little children. So that's how we, so, so, so that's how we know now that it's, it's about salvation, and we're going to talk about God's sovereignty, right? But if you want if to talk about God's sovereignty in salvation, we must first understand what salvation is, or else, many pe- as many people do, they will say, wow, that's cruel of God to just save some people. But if we understand what the nature is of salvation, what happens in regeneration, then it will be more understandable why we need God's sovereign grace, why God's sovereign grace is needed in order for someone to be saved. So let's look at, let's just look at what salvation is. What happens when a person becomes a Christian? For that, we must first understand what is a sinner. And we have one description of a sinner. We obviously know that there are many ways to describe a sinner. But John 3.19 is a very poignant um, passage on on the sinfulness of man. It says this. Jesus says this. And this is the the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Loved the darkness. It's an issue of the heart. Every person that comes into this world, is born into this world, loves the darkness. And loving something is not something that you control. It's out of your control. If I ask you, which is your favorite food? And you tell me, I don't know, pizza. It's not that that... Love for pizza is a mental decision. You didn't wake up one morning, okay, I'm going to start loving pizza. Something that happens to you, you love. It's just a natural outflow of who you are. I love, I don't know, Mozart, or I love um, Lake Michigan. I love love mountains more than I love going to the sea. It's just things that are in us. We, We don't control a lot of these things, right? What we love. Affections. Those are very powerful things, and we have very little control over them if we really think about it. And it says here that the sinner loves something. He does not love God. The sinner loves darkness. He doesn't just do dark dark acts. He loves it. So this is a this is a dark predicament for the for for the people for for everyone born into this world. Because what does the Old Testament say? Can a leopard change its spots? Or can the Ethiopian change his skin? How how then are those that are accustomed to doing evil change? You You can't change your heart. You can't change what you love. If I tell you, if a person that goes to Burger King every day, and someone comes along and tells him, hey, apples are very good for you. You should eat apples. And he will be like, yes, apples are very good. And then he takes a bite from the apple, Ah, he spits it out. His taste buds have not been, he loves Burger King. His taste buds have not been changed to appreciate fruits and how nutritious fruits can be for him. Or with music bands, or I don't know, music in general, uh, classical music, whatever you like. You can tell me all day long why, I don't know, like, what do people listen to nowadays? Justin Bieber or something, some modern artist. Oh yeah, very good, you should listen to him. Okay, and then I listen, I don't like it. It no, doesn't matter how much you tell me how good he is. I don't like it. It's not, it's not me. It's not, I, it's not what I love. So, it's, it's, it's an issue of the heart. It's something internal. That's the problem. That's the problem of the of the Sinner. His, 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 his problem is that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperate, desperately wicked. Who can know it, right? Like Jeremiah 79 says. So, that's, that's bad news because just a few verses before about the, about the cities and about the people in the cities basically, right? That Jesus is talking to. He says, woe to you. Woe to you. Do these people that were in this situation that love darkness rather than light, Jesus was in their midst. And they, no, nope, we don't want light. We want darkness. They love the darkness. He's, Jesus tells them, woe to you. That's judgment. That's the wrath of God. Is, it remains on those people that love the darkness. And they might not be aware of it, but that's, that's the reality. So that's a problem. It's a problem for the sinner, um, for everyone who is born into this world, that he loves darkness, he loves his sin, and God's wrath remains on him. But not only that, there's one more, there's, there's one more thing, and that's, it's not, that, not just that he loves darkness, but that he does not love the truth, or that, that, or that he hates light. Um, in Second Thessalonians 2, 9-12, we, we read this. Um, Paul says this, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception to those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Not just believe. Love. They refuse to love the truth. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believed the truth, but had pleasure and unrighteousness. So Paul is saying here, yes, pleasure and unrighteousness, love the darkness, but not just that. They did not love the truth. So there's another reality where the sinner not just hates or loves the darkness, but hates the light. And that's what um, John 3.20 says also. In the same context that we read the, the verse about loving darkness, Jesus also says, that those people, that the sinners, hate um, the light. And the commandment is clear 1 Corinthians 16 22. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Very clear. So that's a problem for humanity. That's a problem for every human being that he hates what he ought to love and he loves what he ought to hate. That's the condition. That's the condition of, of, of every sinner. Now, maybe someone would say, "Yes, that's a very bad, very bad situation." But maybe if the reward is good enough, then someone could start following God. Yeah, Some, you know, salvation could be—he you know, would be willing to follow God, and then like that, be saved. Um, like you know, if God promises maybe health and wealth and prosperity, then yeah, that person will change his ways and will follow him. Um, just like someone could promise. Well, you know, uh, I'm, I'm in college for three years. It's going to be hard, but I'm going to earn a lot of money later on. So I'm just going to, you know, I'm, there's a good reward there. Yeah, so that's why I'm going to just push through. But what does, what does the Bible promise for those that want to follow Him? There are some great promises of, of peace and joy, but let us look at a few of the rewards that Jesus, um, that Jesus has and, and says that, that those that follow Him Will obtain Matthew five eleven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Wow, that's a reward. Suffering, suffering. If you if you're following, if you're gonna follow me, suffering. If you're gonna stop loving darkness and, and stop hating light, change your ways. What you will get is suffering. That's what Jesus is is insinuating here. And then a few verses later, he says um, about those that are going to follow me, they must must, uh, fight against sin in this manner, that if your hand causes you to sin, you must cut it off. That's, That's serious. That's almost gruesome language. Or your eyeballs you must pluck them out. Obviously, we understand that that doesn't mean literally, but that's, the images are there for a reason. Serious battle against sin. That's, that's the characteristic of, a, of someone who wants to follow Christ. Matthew 11, a scribe comes up to him and tells him he will follow him wherever he will go. He will follow Jesus wherever. I mean, surely Jesus will not have something you know, radical to say to him. He will just say, okay, yeah, you can come with me. He tells, that's not the truth, he, what we, that's not true, what he tells him is this, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son has nowhere to lay his head. And a little um, further, there's another disciple that wanted to follow him, but he wanted to bury first his, his father, which is a good and commendable thing, right? But Jesus says this, this, this quote, which is very memorable, he says, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. That's that's very strong language. And uh, the point here is not that you ought not to... that Yeah, we should honor our parents, right? But the point here is Christ must be supreme. If you're going to follow Christ, he must be supreme over everything else in your life. And our last one. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the reward for, for following Jesus. This is what those that are in sin are being invited to. This is not exactly how some, like a human, be- human being would start a world religion, right? Who would want to follow um, that? Who would want to- it's, like, it's like someone. Um, trying to promote Michigan State University and saying, you know, come, come study with us. But, you know, actually you will have like many hours, many nights where you only sleep one hour or two hours. You'll have, you know, your Greek professor calling you out in the middle of the class and telling you to pronounce your Greek word. And you'll m- mispronounce it and they will laugh at you. And you will have a very bad social life for maybe three years where you're just going to s- focus on your books or maybe focus too much on your books and but you know, come study with us, it's gonna be great. Right? That's not how that's not how you do good marketing. That's not how it works. But Jesus is up front. Jesus does not Jesus gives them the truth and and how what a life um what a life in, in obedience to him and, and following him looks like. And really it comes down to this that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, right? That's just, or, or will be persecuted. That's just a reality. And, and so we have this. We have a man who loves darkness, who hates the light, and who has been promised suffering if he will be saved and follow Christ and, and change his ways. Obviously, again, I repeat, we know there's more to it than just suffering. There's all, right, it's a whole package. But from an earthly standpoint... You get Jesus. If you get saved, you get Jesus. Earthly, in an earthly manner, we have not been promised anything else. You have not been promised a big house. God might bless you with, uh, with a good income. He might not bless you with a good income. He might bless you with health. He might not bless you with good health. That is not why a Christian becomes a Christian. Jesus is the reward. God is the reward. God is the gospel. Even justification, even God's incarnation, even uh, Jesus' incarnation, even His crucifixion, everything was for this one purpose, that we would be His people again and that He would be our God again. God is the gospel, and He is the reward, ultimately, of of those that that come to to Him. And that's just not something that, that a man who loves the darkness and hates the light is interested in. He has a set, his mind set on earthly things. He wants something earthly to, from, to, to, to receive. I want some money. I want some, I want some good marriage. I want some... Give me, give me something earthly. But that's not, that's not the, the, the promise. And looking at this, I think we can see why there needs to be an internal change, a, a change in nature. That salvation is not just a change of... of Someone who smoked before and then now stops smoking and stops drinking. A doctor can tell you that. You don't need to be born again for that. There will be external effects if you, are, if you become a Christian. But it's not primarily that. This is how the Bible talks about regeneration or salvation. Second Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have been made new. Ezekiel 36 talks about a new heart. You have a new heart. If, you, if you're a Christian, you have a new heart. Your heart of stone has been removed. A new uh, heart of flesh has been given. Jesus says that you must be born again. That's radical language. Radical language. You have to be, become a completely new person. Internally. That's, that's, that's what happens in the, in, the, in the heart. Or what about Romans 8? Romans Paul talks about um, those who live according to the flesh and those who live according to the spirit, right? Carnally minded and spiritually minded. We're talking here about a, a, a miracle, really. It's nothing uh, short of a miracle. I mean, really, the greatest miracle that you can possibly think about. Something that is dark, something that is black, becomes something that is good, something that is light, something that is holy in Christ, right?